friends. How are you today? I hope you're doing well. Are you ready for a podcast? Good, because I have one. This is episode number 393 of Smart Podcast Trashy Books. I'm Sarah Wendell from Smart Bitches, and today I am talking with New York Times bestselling author Renee Atia. We are going to be talking about vampire murder mysteries, which are three words that I didn't realize I was totally into, but I'm totally into them. Her book, The Beautiful, is out, and The Damned will be out in a few months. So we are going to talk about writing what she refers to as her id book. We also discuss the empowerment and feminism inherent in becoming consumed by something we love, like a book or a series of books. We are going to talk about craft, the construction of character, conflict versus puzzle plots, fashion, food, and more writing. There's a lot to discuss here. I do want to issue a very important warning. At about 32 minutes to 36 minutes, there is a discussion of the Kavanaugh hearings, assault, violence, and some plot spoilers. So once you get to around 32 minutes, if that's something you want to skip over, skip ahead to minute 36 and you should be in the clear. Now, if you would like to email me, I would love to hear from you. You can reach us at sbjpodcast at gmail.com, or you can leave a message and tell me a really bad joke at 1201-371-3272. I do love hearing from you, so thank you in advance for taking the time to tell me things. This week's episode, and every episode, receives a transcript, and it is hand-compiled by Garlic Knitter. Thank you, Garlic Knitter. The transcript this week is being brought to you by our Patreon community. If you have supported the show with a monthly pledge, thank you. You are making every show accessible to everyone, and you keep the show going each and every week. If you would like to join our Patreon community, have a look at patreon.com slash smartpitches. Pledges start at one whole dollar a month, and every pledge makes a deeply, deeply appreciated difference. Hello, to our newest Patreon members, Lisa, Nancy, and Slayon. I think I'm saying that correctly. Probably not. And I have a compliment this week. To Kate K. There is a team of secret biographers in a non-creepy way chronicling your life for future generations because the actions you take every day tell an incredibly inspiring story. So thank you. If you would like a compliment of your very own, have a look at patreon.com slash smartpitches. As usual, I will have a complete list of books and things that we talk about in this episode in the show notes at smartpitchestrashybooks.com slash podcast. And at the end of the episode, I will have a truly, truly terrible joke. But now let's get started. On with the podcast. Absolutely. So hello, my name is Renee Ahdia. I am an author of books, um, mostly for young adult readers, uh, but I have a large crossover audience as well. As someone who is in her 30s, I've been in love with young adult books since uh, before I probably should have been in love with what would be considered young young adult books. And uh, I'm a a New York Times bestselling author of books. And uh, it's, it's always awkward to introduce yourself with that. Uh, but you know, <laughs> whatever you're going to do. So um, I have written three series. My first one is The Wrath and the Dawn and The Rose and the Dagger, which takes place in a fantasy of uh, ancient Persia. And the uh, second series is Flame in the Mist and Smoke in the Sun, which is, takes place in a fantasy feudal Japan. And my latest series has begun with The Beautiful, which was released at the beginning of October, which is a vampire murder mystery that takes place in 1872 New Orleans. Yes. So first, 
I need to apologize because I have been saying your surname incorrectly. <laughs> I thought it was I thought it was Adia, but it is Adia. Is that right? So yeah, yeah, it's Adia. It's it's a, it's a tricky Ahdia. one. It, it, it's it's funny though because like the way you said it is also lovely. So <laughs> oh, well, I want to be correct. I mean, I apologize for getting it wrong before. And congratulations, a on hitting the times. You should absolutely own that at every opportunity because that's Thank astonishing. You. And two, congratulations on the beautiful. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it, Sarah. It's so funny when you say things like, and it's a vampire murder mystery. I feel like I feel like I'm being reintroduced to a, a favorite food that I've forgotten I'd loved. Absolutely. You and know? <laughs> the whole purpose behind writing this series is purely selfish because now I can get all of these vampire books that are coming in. I'm like, give them all to me. I would love to read them. I've missed them a lot. So <laughs> And vampires work as a motif on so many levels in horror, in romance, in mystery. It's it's really like being reintroduced to something that I forgot how much I adored. Absolutely. I couldn't agree with you more. I mean, I fell in love with vampire books when I was 12 years old. The first time I stole a copy of uh, Anne Rice's Queen of the Damned from my father. So uh, again, going back to me reading books I probably shouldn't have been reading. Um, no regrets. <laughs> zero regrets. <laughs> So this book has almost a little bit of everything for every reader. You have vampires, uh, New Orleans, food, secret societies, dressmaking, uh, mysteries, really uh, somewhat ambivalent or ambiguously noble characters. Can you tell me a little bit about this book? Oh my gosh. So this is a book that I wanted to write ever since I was a teenager. And um, there's so many things that have sort of woven their way into the tapestry of this novel. Um, just aspects of myself, aspects of the things I really enjoy. For me, uh, often when I speak to other authors, we talk about something we coined id books. And I believe maybe Carrie Ryan was the first person who said that to me. And an id book, be id book being a book that is purely wish fulfillment. Every aspect of this is something Thing that you are just like, you know, this is something I love, and I'm just going to throw it all together into like this wonderful, <laughs> you know, savory, rich stew, hopefully. And that's exactly what I did with this book. I love uh, fashion. I love food. I'm very passionate about food, especially food from all over the world. And as a child of mixed race, it was extremely important to me to make sure that I was reflecting the world in which I lived. And, you know, when I was a kid growing up as a very avid reader, you know, there weren't many books about kids who were, you know, multiracial, or even for that matter, kids who were coming from marginalized backgrounds. Largely, the books mm -hmm. I fell in love with were written by white writers about white characters. And it was never a decision for me when I started to write to sort of, you know, want to work my own uh, personal life into the stories that I'm writing. And also, I'm extremely fortunate to have around me um, a cast of diverse characters in my own life, which which is, is very exciting because it's it's a reflection of the world I live in and the world I hope everyone is looking to see in the future. So, so you took all of the things that you love about your actual world and then combined <laughs> them in a world with all the things that you like reading about. Mm -hmm. I love the expression "id book." That That's is a so perfect <laughs> way of putting it. Well, and, and I feel like, too, it's so much of what Twilight and a lot of these books that have sort of captured our attention within the last 20 years, especially with respect to young adult literature, they're very id books. And we can debate the merits and demerits of whether or not, you know, like, like 
Edward is a problematic hero or whatever. Or I, I mean, I just, I'm very protective of books like Twilight. And the reason is because I feel like, and this is something I, you definitely touch on too in your brilliant podcast. You know, like I just think society is so quick to judge the things women love, to ju- and especially yes. the things young women love. We're so quick to denigrate it as a society. And I feel like so much of the the flack that books like Twilight get is largely because of that. And people are ignoring, you know, that we're being captivated by a story and we're being motivated to read and, 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 you know, like take ourselves away to a different world, a different time and place or different experiences and dream a little bit. And I think, especially in our current climate, dreaming is a must. Hoping is. Oh God. (laughs) Yes. I remember reading Twilight when it was a phenomenon Mm -hmm. and being of two almost two minds about it on one hand i was like there are some things about this i really don't like there are some Mm -hmm. things about this i'm not really enjoying critically i don't like this part Mm -hmm. and then there was a part of me my perpetual 13 year old self she was so on board with everything being said the secret world the secret universe this society that you don't get to know about until you know the secret and the thing about books like twilight is that once you've read them you know the secret mm-hmm. it's like harry potter once you've read them you're part of the secret world mm-hmm. and that that works so well as a device when you add to it the the fact that young women and older women liked it mm-hmm. then it would became a problem you're entirely right about that absolutely and i think too people are intimidated by something um, all consuming if, if they haven't given women permission to be all consumed by that. And historically yes. we've told women, you may be all consumed by, you know, very, very feminine things by getting married, by having a baby. This is not something you're allowed to be all consumed by. It's alarming because it, it makes people believe, especially people in power, specifically men in power, believe that they could lose control. And, and I, it's one of the reasons why I love books so much, why I love stories so much, because there was such an all consuming aspect to this. And again, we can have really great discussions about the merits and demerits of certain character aspects, choices that were made by the author. But we can't ignore the fact that it what it, it tapped into all of us, irrespective of our age, is this sort of the all-consuming nature of love, the all-consuming nature of being a teenager, and you know, really not being jaded by things that have happened in the world that have sort of made us to have to take a step back and not experience wonder. And I, that's one of the reasons I really enjoy writing young adult fiction because I'm allowed to do that. I'm allowed to step back. I have permission to not be jaded about the things that are wonderful in life. One of the downsides of recording audio only, the upside is that I usually get a better recording because my computer system is not trying to transmit video. The downside (laughs) being you can't see me nodding emphatically. Yes, (laughs) that is such a perfect way to put that, the idea that you're not permitted to be consumed by something unless it's already established as something you're Mm -hmm. allowed to fully engage in. Mm -hmm. And you know, that's why things like cosplay and comic cons are so alarming because you're not supposed to nerd out and be passionate about things that aren't condoned for you. And uh, vampire romance, definitely in the uh, not condoned department. And it's, and and yet it's like, it's like whenever my, my father told me I couldn't read certain books, obviously I'm going towards. So I, I almost, I applaud like uh, people who sort of embrace like even in the banned book culture, because that's something we talk about a lot in young adult literature, often we, uh, that we love and are really passionate about and are incredibly important pieces of work. They get banned. And and then I love watching authors be like, great, I'm on the banned book list. That's not going to hurt anything. (laughs) 
Yeah. Thank you. That that is really, really great. If you could do it again. Yes, exactly. Oh, I'm my next book. Oh, yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yes. Ban them all, please. I would love to have that logo associated with my name. It's it's it's, uh, it's, it's um, one time I had this reviewer, I can't remember for which book it was, who said that um, the the romance was very titillating, and they meant to say it in a sort of critical way. And I'm like, Oh, mistake that because that would it, even if I were 12, 13 years old, I'd be like, Oh, um, yes, <laughs> I will read this book. <laughs> I used to joke that if I ever sold reviews, if I ever charged for reviews, the only reviews I would charge astonishing amounts of money for are reviews that say, this book had too much sex in it. <laughs> because like, again, that's for me. I'm like, I bought it. Thank you. That is. Yeah. One, one click. I bought it. Yeah. <laughs> so vampire romance has such a wonderfully rich history in YA, in romance, in literature that is read a lot by women and girls. What led you into vampire romance for this book? I know it's your id book, and I know it's the book that you long to write. What was it that grabbed you about vampire romance and the world that you created? Well, I really love the way you phrased an earlier question about um, me sort of exploring uh, like morally ambiguous characters and morally am- ambiguous situations. I think that that's the term you used, and it's something I really enjoy. I call it the morally the gray spaces. I'm really sort of captivated by them. And going back to what I discussed earlier about all consuming, like emotions, all consuming experiences. um, For me, the sort of quintessential things in life are love and death. They're the things that are all consuming for so many of us. And you can't really have one without the other. And in my mind, I think it's mostly because the idea that our time here is finite, uh, makes everything we experience and everything we yearn for feel that much more, you know, like just real and urgent. And when you're dealing with vampires, love and death is, of course, like if you look at any sort of literature, I've been a huge fan of Gothic uh, literature since I was a kid. You know, Frankenstein, obviously, Anne Rice. I've read every single obscure vampire book out there, including George R. R. Martin's Fever Dream, which I will contend is the best thing he's written. Um, I, I think that love and death are of course all consuming. And then the question becomes when you're dealing with immortal creatures who consume blood to live the blood of the living to to continue existing, I should say, um, can love exist beyond time? And does anything matter if you have an infinite amount of time to experience life? And, and so I really enjoy taking these creatures, at least in my worlds, and I've seen them in a lot of, of, of other vampire worlds where the immortal beings are that much more consumed by love and death than, and that's the thing that I loved about um, Anne Rice's books. You have these creatures who are, you know, there's, there seem to be no limit to the things they can do and the things they can achieve. And yet they're still so desperately attached to their mortality and still want to experience very basic human feelings and, and experiences. And I really enjoy that. And it's interesting to think about, you know, how are your priorities going to change if you're not going to die, exactly. provided you find enough blood to keep you going? Exactly. What actually becomes important? It's not money after a while. Mm-hmm. It becomes power and secrecy Mm -hmm. and and protecting your own existence. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. 
And the, and again, the question that I love to ask people when I'm doing panels is if you had a chance to live forever, would you want to? And everybody, you know, offhand, they're like, oh, I think I would, but really think about it. Like the idea that everybody you love, all the things that you're passionate about, you would watch them wither before you, or you would lose sense of yourself in relation to like the mortal world. And you would just become, which is, is what Anne Rice talks about. It's sort of like a casual observer of things that you can never really be a part of. I don't know if that's something that people, and, and, and I love exploring that in this world because this world, uh, at least the world of new Orleans and the reason I love the city so much and chose to uh, have the book take place there is it, it is a world of so many, it's, it's a world of life and death. It really is. Mm-hmm. And it's and it's a world, especially where you've set the book, it's a world that is extremely visually old. Mm-hmm. You recognize its age and you recognize its history, but it's also reborn, especially after Katrina, after economic downfalls, after tourism collapsed after Katrina. It is still in a lot of ways renewing itself as well. Mm-hmm. It creates an almost magical sense that you're no longer on the in the, on the planet. Almost like when when I was younger, I went to Alaska mm-hmm. and I looked at everything and I was like, I do not believe I'm standing on the same planet <laughs> that I live on. This does not look like anything I have ever seen in my life. And I had the same sort of feeling when I was in the desert in in Tucson. Like oh, so cool. this does not look like my planet. And I I had that same experience in New Orleans. I've never been in a place that looked like this. I've never been in a place that that felt like this. That the smells, the unique smells of, mm-hmm. the, of the city mm-hmm. and the cooking, all of that creates an otherworldly atmosphere. What what are some things you love about New Orleans? Oh gosh, I mean, I, we could have a, an entire discussion podcast on this. I think uh, <laughs> for for me, obviously, my introduction to New Orleans was through the Anne Rice's lens, um, and I remember sort of being uh, entranced by the idea of it. And I have gone now about thirteen times, and it's so fun for me to be able to travel to the city that I love so much. And call it research, um, and go and eat at all of these amazing restaurants and listen to music that just takes you to another time and place. I mean, there, I was just there um, a couple of days ago for tour, and I went with my editor and my agent who had come to join me just for a, a one or two days stay there, and we went out to listen to some music and just being moved to tears by you know just another kind of art that's so rooted in. Uh, you know, just so rooted in that city, so rooted, rooted in history, and so rooted in fraught aspects of history. And to watch people of, um, you know, all persuasions enjoying this fantastic music, it was just something to move me to tears. But I have to say probably, and I agree with you about how otherworldly it looks. I feel like there's there's a mystery everywhere. There's something sinisterly sexy about the city. It's, it smells everything about it. The food, I'm so passionate about the food. But for me, the thing that struck me the most about New Orleans and continues to captivate me, it's the people. Uh, the people there are some of the warmest, most unique, most wonderful people I've ever met in my life. And I couldn't really put my finger on why it was I felt comfortable there so quickly. And it took about two or three times and I was talking to a local there who's since become a really good friend. And she told me, she was like, well, it's because we're, we've been a majority minority city for a very long time. And I sort of sat back and I listened and I thought, and I thought she's entirely correct. She was like, you don't have to explain yourself here. And then immediately it clicked for me because, you know, as a, as a child, my mother's family is South Korean. My father's family is white. 
um, when we lived in Korea, uh, and then when we moved eventually to the US, I always felt like I was half of one thing and not enough of the other. And I always had to explain myself wherever I went. People would ask that question. And I know there's no malice behind it, but it's dehumanizing nonetheless to be like, what are you? Where are you from? You know, and, and it's a, it's an, it's a seemingly innocuous question, but also it's, it's like a little bit like a blow to the chest. You know, I'm a human. I'm from planet Earth. Um, <laughs> and I never, ever had to explain myself in New Orleans. And I think it's largely because, I mean, they were a port city. They were a, a major port for the slave trade. They had people coming in from Haiti, coming down from Canada, the Acadians that eventually formed the Cajun uh, culture. And then you have this blend of cultures, too, that's created its own unique culture, like Creole. And so much of it is because of mixing of races and mixing of cultures and heritage. and. I don't have to explain myself there. That's that's really incredible. And it gives you a place where because you don't have to explain there, even though you're a visitor, mm-hmm. you feel at home, exactly. which is so valuable. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So valuable and so unique. I can't really think of any place in my entire life, any city in my entire life where I've had that singular experience. Do you feel that way about the worlds that you create in your books? Because you've set your books in very different worlds. Do you feel that way about the world you create when you write? Absolutely. And I feel like uh, that's, I think it's almost, at least for me, I can't speak to other writers, it's necessary for me to feel that connection. Um, and I, with, with my first series, The Wrath and the Dawn and the Rose and the Dagger, that takes place in ancient Persia. My husband's family is Persian. So that book series, uh, not to mention the fact that it's the book series that made my dream come true of being a published author. Um, it's also wonderful because it, it gave me an opportunity to really explore my husband's culture. And my, his mom is someone who studied literature when she was in Iran and they left the country. They fled the country um, right before the fall of the Shah. Um, they are practitioners of the Baha'i faith. And they believe in the Baha'i faith, which is considered heretical in Iran. So they would consider spies of Israel. They've never been able to go back. My husband's never been there. He's the only one of his brothers who was born in the U.S. And, you know, again, that whole experience, because they, they were religious refugees and eventually made their way here through chain migration. It speaks so much to everything that's going on, you know, in our country, in our world right now. And it's made me so passionate about, about really advocating and listening to people who are coming from these very unique experiences and wanting to give everybody, you know, like the, the just the grace that we, we should give to another human being. And uh, the books themselves uh, taught me so much about Persian culture and really broadened and deepened my understanding. And then with Flame in the Mist, uh, it, it takes place in Japan. My mother's family is from Korea. So getting to explore an East Asian world, it felt very, very personal to me too. And I didn't, the reason I chose Japan is because I wanted to explore a culture that I'd always kind of had some sort of connection to. Uh, We would often go there when I was younger, um, mostly for food. And also, you know, there's, there's the, there's sort of difficult uh, association to my, my mother and her family lived during the Japanese occupation period. And there's a lot of, of difficulty there too. And, and I really wanted to explore and understand more about the differences and the similarities because I think that that was very important to me. With the characters in The Beautiful, 
you have created some really memorable people (laughs) Um, between Odette and Arjun and Bastion and Celine. How did you develop them? Were were some of them like really fun or more fun to write? Like were there some that were like, my turn to talk now? Um, Definitely. But I think I felt very strongly about each of them. And I... I don't really want to write a character that I feel could be throwaway. And one of the things, because I, I write from character, primarily that's where I structure any narrative. I start and stop with character. And because I, I, I personally believe I can, I can watch a movie or read a book about two people locked in an elevator for the entirety of the narrative, as long as those two people are interesting. And, you know, I could watch a movie uh, about two people who are, you know, trying to save the world. And if I don't care about them, I unfortunately don't care about the plot at all. So um, it's, it's just, if I find a character isn't captivating me in some way, then I know that character has to go. And that sounds hatchet. So, uh, and it's, it's fun to write so many different kinds of personalities too, because I feel like I'm able to give voice to the many facets of me. Uh, and and I'm, I, I don't know if that's something other writers say, but I have, you know, like in all of us, we contain multitudes, right? And, yep. and trying to get to explore the, the person that I might have been as a, as, a, as a teenager, which is much more like Pippa versus the, uh, the person I am today, which is more like Celine. Uh, Celine is the most like me of any character I've ever written, which was frightening and cathartic. And then, you know, getting to explore these brooding, you know, beautiful boys and like their, their, their past, especially as they pertain to their, the lives they've lived and the places they've lived and the experiences they've been given it's 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 wonderful. It's really wonderful. And getting to talk to people around me, like I mentioned, my our really close friends who live in India, getting to explore their culture and the things that are important to them through Arjun has been such a gift too. You mentioned that your stories begin and end with character. Mm-hmm. So you create the characters and the plot follows them. Is that what that means? Could you could you explain what you mean by that? I think that's really interesting because in my very, 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 very limited <laughs> experience writing fiction, uh, I need to hear the characters talking in my head before I can start writing. They need to have their own voices before I feel like I can actually sit down and write things down. So I'm curious about your take on starting with character. I completely agree with you. I think you have to be able to hear the voices. Uh, and, 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 and and I say that in as, as you know, normal way when writers as possible. Talk. <laughs> normal way as possible. Well, what I do when I'm crafting the beginning of a story is I will begin with the characters, like the ones that, you know, have really, again, their voices have ca- captivated me. Um, so the example I'd like to use in craft workshops is Shahrazad from The Wrath and the Dawn. That's my first book. Um, she is she has volunteered to marry this, you know, murdering boy king uh, to, in an attempt to get revenge for the fact that he killed her best friend. So she's volunteered to marry him. He is inexplicably taking new brides every night and having them murdered at dawn. And uh, she devises this plan to stay alive, which is, again, it's a story of Scheherazade from A Thousand and One Nights by beginning a story um, and ending it on the cliffhanger in the morning and promising to continue the following evening. So, um, and it, it, that, of course, that narrative captivated me because it's discussing the power of story. And Shahrazad, I put her name in the center of a piece of paper. Uh, so I'll write Shahrazad and then I'll put these branches going off of it, kind of like a web. And I'll write the character traits I would like Shahrazad to embody. So for instance, Shahrazad is brave. 
Um, so then I'll construct a scene in my mind that shows rather than tells that Shahrazad is brave. And so I think of the very first scene in The Wrath and the Dawn when she's marching down this, this sort of like this throne room going towards a murderous boy king she's volunteered to marry with just hate and murder in her heart. And this demonstrates that she's brave because she's marching towards what many people believe to be her, in, her inevitable death. And she's right. doing it without fear and without worry. And then I do this with every single character. I construct these scenes that I believe portray that. And then I'll start to string a chronological narrative. And when I do that, I often find things that are redundant or things that overlap or a scene that can do the work of three all at once. And I'll start to condense it until I find, and then I'll fit it into a three-act structure, uh, which uh, Blake Snyder's Save the Cat was really instrumental in helping me sort of get, just get the loose outlines of that. Mm-hmm. But largely, it will be motivated by the way that the characters feel about certain things, because you can put characters in devastating situations, and you can put characters in, in situations that don't necessarily look like they would be terrible on the surface, but if you're successful at delving beneath the surface and getting toward that, the, the very common things that root us all, how we feel about things, um, I feel like you can write a really compelling narrative. And those are the things that I look for in the books I want to read. So you take the character and develop the main traits and motivations mm-hmm. and then make sure those things are present in what they do in the story. Mm-hmm. Exactly. So that it's rooted first and foremost in their emotional arc. Right. Which is my favorite thing anyway. I love internal conflict. Me too. Me it's too. my favorite type of conflict. <laughs> I think this is why I'm such a sucker for any type of like coffee shop AU. (laughs) You could take anything and stick it in a coffee shop. And I'm like, people are going to sit around talking and caffeinating. I'm here for it. Tell me all your internal problems. Dog agrees. There we go. We knew it was going to happen. Hello. That's right. That's right. Zeb agrees with coffee shop AUs. All of them are good. (laughs) Well, it's one of the reasons why I love reading romance books. I mean, a huge fan of historical romance, Regency romance. And often I have people who aren't as strong, you know, passionate about the, the genre as I am asking me, why do you keep reading the same story and I'm personally offended immediately when they say that I'm like excuse me and then oh, no. it's it's not about I mean yes there's there's something wonderfully comfort, comforting and satisfying about that inevitable HEA that happily ever, ever after but for me it's not about that that journey it's not about that moment it's about how you got there and the twinges that you get sort of behind your heart when something really strikes you and really catches your attention. That's what I'm looking for in any book. So, yeah. <laughs> yes. Why is it always the same? It's not. Trust me. It's trust not. Me. It's not always the same. It's, it's why often some books that people are like, oh, this is so like I, I remember reading the, the Da Vinci Code and that was a really, really easy read for me. Um, and, and again, that's another book that people really love to, you know, love and hate and love to hate. Uh, but the thing that never worked for me with that book was that I never had an emotional connection to any of the characters. No. And there wasn't a lot of um, emotional or internal conflict. Mm -mm, mm -mm. It was a puzzle. Mm -hmm. And that's fun. That's super fun. Oh Um, yeah. But, but it's not going to be something I go back to reread or anything like that. (laughs) Yeah. So your most excellent publicist, Olivia. (laughs) She Uh, is wonderful. (laughs) And also you mentioned that Celine is very personal, one of the most character, most personal characters that you've, that you've written. Um, can you talk a little bit about why and what you loved about writing her? Absolutely. It's, it's, I, 
So every book that I've written at this point, the main character, they're usually uh, young women because I'm writing for young adults. Um, and they're, they're sort of aspirational. So Shahrazad from The Wrath and the Dawn is the 16-year-old girl I wish I could have been. She always has uh, a quip at the ready. She's fiercely loyal. She's not afraid to like, you know, get in people's faces. And this is who I wish I could have been when I was 16. And um, alas, I was someone who always had the retort 10 minutes too late. And it was a good one, yep. but completely out of place, <laughs> completely out of place. Yep. And who often struggled with whether or not, you know, this was an appropriate time for my voice to be heard. And then with uh, Mariko, who's the main character in Flame in the Mist and Smoke in the Sun, she is this brilliant scientist and inventor. And I based a lot of her on my younger sister, who is a brilliant scientist. That is not at all my strong suit. So I, I, they're, they're, they're sort of like, they were just aspirational. And then when I started to write Celine, I had the same intention. But then I found myself uh, drafting during the Kavanaugh hearings. And oh boy. yeah, and I remember having such a like, just seething undercurrent of rage going through me through, like the, throughout the entirety of that. And it wasn't, I was definitely not alone. My friends, even my mom, just everybody was, we were all so epic angry. And, yeah. and I, I kept thinking to myself, we're not going to let this happen to get again. And when I was watching Dr. Ford testify, I remember shaking in like, just like so, being so like angry, but then also so heartbroken. I remember shaking and thinking about the fact that, you know, unfortunately, three out of five women at some point in their lives, according to statistics, are going to be survivors of some form of assault, which is unfortunately more women than it is less women. And, you know, I'm among them. And I, when I was writing Celine's narrative, one of the inciting incidents is that she, in self-defense, murders the boy who tries to rape her. And she flees her home of Paris to come to New Orleans and begin a new life because she's certain no one will believe her. And in Paris in 1872, the penalty for murdering someone is that you will be hanged. And so she sort of leaves her entire world behind, sort of, you know, wanting to move away from this, this darkness and this, the sin that she perceives herself as having committed because she's, she's killed someone. And that, unfortunately, that narrative has not changed in, in the 21st century. I think of my own experiences and the experiences of my uh, of the people that I'm, I'm fortunate enough to call, you know, my close friends and family. Mm -hmm. And that shame, that darkness, that sense of responsibility, it's cultivated by our society still to this day. That idea that a, a girl will not be believed, a woman will not be believed, and that you take on this burden and you take on this sort of like the shadow that hovers over you. I really wanted to write about it. And I wanted to write about a character for better, or for worse, sort of embracing it and being like, you know, you know, like, I'm not sorry I did this, even though this, the world is telling me I should be sorry for this. If something is wrong with me because of that, I don't want to be right. That's the, that's the character I wanted because that's the character that that's who I've become in my 30s. And I wish I could have had that when I was much younger. And it's empowering, I think, mm -hmm. also to to f attempt to reframe and to yell back at the idea mm -hmm. that if you are assaulted, in some way, it's your fault. Yeah. What did you do to contribute to this happening to you? Because we have to find the part where it's your fault, too. And for her to say, okay, this part, not my fault. Mm -hmm. The other part, the part where this dude's dead, that's that's my fault, mm -hmm. but I have no problems with that. I'm Exactly. Okay. Like, that's... 
that's a massive reframing of a lot of, of victim guilt that is sort of shoveled onto victims of assault. Absolutely. And then the journey to get there for Celine yes. is not an easy journey. It's not something she comes to overnight because it, it, it's even for us in the 21st century, short, sort of shedding, you know, you know, millennia of the patriarchy telling us otherwise um, for having to apologize. I mean, we're still encountering, you know, situations where I remember just, just a couple of days ago reading, I don't know if you saw this, this Ernst and Young thing where they were trying to tell women how to dress at work. That's, that's like, this is the 21st century. This is, you know, a major corporation essentially indirectly chastising women for distracting men at work. And it's just, it's just, it's mind boggling. And, and, and I mean, you know, not to mention the fact that we have, you know, in charge of our country, a man that has, 20 plus accusations of sexual misconduct. And it doesn't seem to faze so many people. It's so infuriating. It's like, listen, if you don't believe this is a problem, then you, none of the women around you trust you. That's the truth. None of the women around you trust you with their lives and their experiences, because uh, that is a gift. That trust is a gift and you clearly don't deserve it. So you take this character who has trauma and rage Mm -hmm. and is doing some very large uh, <laughs> attempts to to save herself, and you put her in a world where, one, as a seamstress, she is constructing not only the clothing and the armor, but that people wear, but also the fantasy of dressing up in like the most opulent gowns. And then you put her in a secret society with some vampires. <laughs> Hell yeah! No, I thank you so much. I'm, I'm, yeah, I'm so there for any of this sort of stuff. I mean, I would be there for like a dressmaker, but like I said, this is my quintessential id narrative. So I'm like, you know what? These are all the things I love. Hopefully, somebody else will enjoy them too. <laughs> oh, one thing I have learned being writing online for almost 15 years and doing this podcast is that. There are always posts or episodes where I think, all right, Sarah, you are the only one who is interested in this, but go ahead. It's your show. It's your post. You go ahead. It's fine. You know what? It's You are not alone, Sarah. Let me tell you, you're not alone. Never. You're never, ever alone. I am never alone in my deep, nerdy love of, you know, obscene cross-stitch. I'm never alone in my interest in, okay, how did you sew that? That's amazing. Um, I'm never alone in that. What fun research did you deep dive into for this book? Like I imagine the the dress porn oh God, alone yes, yes. Is, is a considerable part of your browsing history. Oh my gosh, yes. And there are so many amazing uh YouTube uh like seamstresses and art artists online that I will watch literally hours of them, you know, con- reconstructing historical garments, um, putting their own spin on things. There's um, one who's the virtuous courtesan. Her name is Lauren. I think her last name is Rossi. She does the most amazing reconstruction work of it, and she's making it a high art for herself. And she's exploring uh, older like sewing techniques. I got to um, work with somebody to learn how to construct a corset. Because there, I wanted to write a narrative that acknowledged that there's some, you know, there is a form of oppression in putting women in cages. I completely understand that. But also there's a form of like women embracing this too. And this movement of, yep. of, of women sort of being like, you know, these, we, we it's, it's like, you know, taking something that was a form of your oppression and, and, and making it your own, you know, reconstructing it, re retooling it so that it fits your life now and you can create a narrative that works for you. And I love this. I mean, fashion is wearable art. 
you look at the way somebody dresses. I feel the same way about their food. You can understand so much about someone just by eating the food that they uh, that they make and by looking at the way they dress. And there's obviously classist and and you know privilege elements to that as well. But I like to look at you know what are the choices this person has made. So I look at someone like Odette, who is an amazing character, to let her inner world be so clearly outside and expressed by her clothing because that's something that you know I wish I could have done when I was a kid I really wish I could have put my things that I loved on my body and walked around in them I think that that would have been amazing (laughs) and it's funny how we still look at clothes in different ways like today I am wearing my most comfortable clothes because I'm doing a lot of recording and talking so I want to be comfortable but also I'm a little tired (laughs) So it's, you know, it's not an underwire day. It's a relaxing day. Later, I have an event. I will dress up. I will put on shoes that make me feel a little bit more badass because I'm going to be. You are a badass. So you should be made. Thank you. (laughs) Thank you. But you, you're the way you approach your own clothing changes in the environment. And it took me a while to undo the lesson of judging other women for what they wear. Of course. It took me a while to undo that lesson um, because like you said, there are people for whom a corset can be incredibly empowering. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And I personally love jeans that have a lot of uh, spandex and lycra, especially <laughs> I, do too. I do too. I think the honest oh. truth is everyone does. People who say otherwise, I just feel like they haven't found the right jeans. But I also think it's wonderful to be a woman who can love to get dressed up in the push-up bra and the stiletto heels and then immediately come home and take it all off and be like, oh, I can breathe. You you can you can be both people in the same day. And I yes, love that. we are complicated. We are not all the same and we're not all the same internally. Exactly, either. exactly. And it's wonderful because you can love the way that, you know, that 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 bra and those shoes make you stand up straight and tall and walk into a room. And again, make sure the, that your outside your inside is on the outside. You know, this is how I really feel. Then it's it's kind of armor too. Uh, that's what I always say because I also really love makeup. And there are a lot of people who love to throw out their unwanted opinions when it comes to makeup. And I, to me, it's wearable art and it's a type of arm art. Too. Yes. yes it's, it's, it's wonderful. Yes. I hired a makeup artist in, I think it was April this year because I had two conferences, a whole bunch of events, and I was in a wedding. Um, I wear glasses and I could never figure out how to put on eye mm-hmm. makeup that didn't immediately disappear when I put my eye makeup, when I put my mm-hmm. eyeglasses on. Like I would do all this work and then I put my glasses on and be like, you can't even see mm-hmm. what I did. So I hired an artist who was like, I will teach you what you need to do to do your eye makeup. And the difference in knowing how to just do my own mm-hmm. face, I know how to work with the face I've got. It is so empowering to know oh, that weird thing with the, with the, with the curvy swipe of this brush. And then I put my glasses on and it's like, yeah, absolutely. I look extra more me now. Hell yeah. It really is empowering. And I needed lessons to figure that out. Absolutely. And that's, that's the thing that like, and what's wonderful too about, you know, like we were talking about how wonderful and terrible technology can be. Um, The the gift of something like YouTube, I mean, gosh, 
Wouldn't yes. we have loved to have that when we were 16 and we were trying to figure out how to, yes. like, and I was putting that stripe of eyeshadow on my eye that was just completely wrong. And, and, uh, my, my nieces <laughs> and my nephew too, who love to watch all of these wonderful, you know, like YouTube gurus, not just for makeup, but for lifestyle and stuff like that. They can learn so many cool things that, like, I mean, there are, there are 15 year olds online who are just like amazing at doing their makeup. And I'm like, oh my God, like you're, you're going to, this yes. is going to be fantastic for your future too. <laughs> and and you get to create characters and live in a world that is real and in a world in your books where the insides begin to match the outsides mm-hmm. because they learn how to match exactly. them. Whether that's YouTube or, you know, chilling with some family. Exactly, so, yeah. exactly. Well, and then the freeing uh, nature of being in a space, that's what I was wanting to do with uh, The Court of the Lions to create what I would have loved to have as a teenager and even into my 20s that safe space because we all that's it's, I, I do feel like that's another human condition we yearn for that safe space whether it's with another person yes. whether it's with ourselves whether it's in a certain place um and i really wanted to because to me the world of vampires has, has always been a world of elegant outcasts and that's i think largely because of my passion for Anne rice's styling of vampires and that is that is a, a role I'm happy to take on because that that works for me. And I feel like that's the case with so many writers and the, and the wonderful men and women I'm I'm privileged to you know be friends with. Um, we're all a bunch of at our core these nerdy, wonderful, amazing outcasts, and we're creating a space for ourselves that we in which we feel safe. And that's just a gift. And and you're part of that because of what you're doing here. Like, like anybody who loves story and loves discussing story, we're all passionate about something. And, and through that, we've created our own spaces. That's what you've done with this podcast. Oh, thank you. I, I do not, I say this frequently, I do not take myself seriously <laughs> at all. Um, I do not take many things seriously, but I take very, very seriously the safety and the, the, uh, the safety and the welcoming perimeter of the community that exists around the podcast and around the website. I take the comment space very safe, very, very seriously. And I take the safety of that space seriously. I am very proud of the fact that you can read the comments at my site and not feel like you need a radioactive decontainment shower where people will come back and say, you know what? I was, I was wrong. I screwed up my bad. I'm sorry about that. And other people will gently engage in discussion in ways that are respectful and kind. That's so wonderful. And then we all want each other to feel safe. It's, and it's, it's so important to have that with your friends, both online and off. Absolutely. And any community you spend a frequent amount of time in, like, like, and, yeah. and I think it's one of the reasons why I'm, I'm hopeful at the same time, like I'm, I'm, I'm sort of, you know, I'm side-eyeing all of the stuff going on with respect to social media. There's so much about it. That's fantastic. Um, but the other part of it is that it does give people who are, I like to think, um, and it's it's what gives me peace, and 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 has given I think other people peace. When people are hateful online, it speaks more about them than it does about you, you know. And and that when you realize that there's so many broken, angry people, um, it's good to realize that because it says something about you know where our society needs to go. Um, and the work that we need yeah. to do, but it's also, you know, it's, it, it can be a major drag to go online and see, you know, like, like even for me to see racist comments or, you know, things that are of a sexual nature charged at me. Um, 
And, and it, you know, you, you can't even engage. And it's very difficult for my, my friends and family when they find out about this. And I'm definitely not alone in this, in this place, especially as a woman of color who has put her, her work out there for public consumption. There are so many amazing writers in the same sphere who get, you know, like 10, 20, 30, 40 times the negative attention that, that I do, but it's taxing. And, you know, it's not oh, it that is. we, and I'm sure that's the case for you, like people sharing their unwanted opinions and, you know, levying personal attacks against you. Um, it's, it can be a lot. Um, and the thing that motivates yeah. me is it is these spaces that you have created that I go to and I'm like, oh, so I can see the worst of humanity, but I can also see the best of humanity. Yes, it is. It is restorative every day. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So speaking of work. <laughs> What are you working on now? <laughs> so um, if my editor is listening to this, I'm very deep into edits on the damn. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> That's what I'm working on now. Um, and the beautiful is the beginning of a four book series. And I've actually structured it after Regency romances, which are some of my, my favorite uh, things to read ever. Um, and the, what I'm trying to do is, you know, with Regency romance, you have like a, a series that will have an overarching plot narrative. But the each individual book will be someone else's story. So you could come in on the third book and not having read the first two books be okay. You don't have to have read them. But obviously, you know, you're, we're hoping that you fall in love with the world and the characters so much that you want to go back and read them. But it's not this massive, uh, you know, like five-year-long commitment to reading every single one of these books in order. Um, I love that about romance novels. And I love the 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 way everybody's stories are woven together. I'm, I'm really into that as well. So um, that's what I'm looking for in this series. And I'm working on the damned right now, which is the most challenging and the most rewarding book I've ever written because I, the, the central theme is dismantling toxic masculinity. So. Oh, here for it. Yes. Let's all. Yeah. Do yeah. <laughs> Hang on. I'll get my boots. Yeah, exactly. No, I have so much to say. I have so many things that because I, I just think, again, it's really important in addition to writing these books about, you know, assertive young women who are finding their place in the world, even if that world is 1872 New Orleans, to really sort of, you know, understanding the other side of of, of the twisted narrative that exists when it comes to our the dynamics of gender and, and the the construct of it in our society. Can you take yeah. somebody who's been raised in a very toxically masculine world and really push this, this, this man, this boy, to question the way in which he's been raised, the way he's thought he should be to be a good man? What does it take to be a good man? Not somebody who can fight, not somebody who can argue, not somebody who's channeling anger in, in place of every other emotion, um, but somebody who has more depth to them and is really questioning what it means to be a man in the world. Yeah. So we've talked about a lot of really difficult things that you have to sort of endure in the world every day between politics and news and social media. What are the things that you do to take care of your creative self and to look after yourself? No, I love this question. Um, so much. I'm, I'm so lucky to do what I do for a living. I read a lot. Um, I love to cook. Uh, I find I find that learning about new cuisines is another. It's another window into somebody else's culture. I love to experiment with cooking. I'm big into makeup. I love watching movies, but I have to be watching them with people like like whose company I really enjoy because to me that broadens the experience. Um, I love taking baths. Uh, <laughs> um, I love being with my dog. Uh, I love being with my you know anybody who 
but again, that safe space that we all have this chance to create in our lives. And some are, you know, really fortunate to be able to easily create it. Um, mine has been a gift to me and, and it continues to be a gift to me. And one I hope I never, ever take for granted. So I always ask this question, what books are you reading right now that you want to tell people about? Oh my gosh, there's so many. Um, I, today I'm saving myself for the uh, Kerrigan Burns new book. Uh, I cannot remember what it's called, but it's it takes place around the Jack the Ripper era in, in Whitechapel in London. And as soon as I heard about this, I was like, like really, this is another Ed book. This is for me. I'm sold on that one. So that's going to be my, my read, my treat for myself this evening. I've read so many wonderful YA books recently. I read uh, Gabby Rivera's Juliet Takes a Breath. She's fantastic. That's a great book. Um, uh, Roshni Chakshi's The Silvered Serpents, which is coming out next year. Um, let me see what else have I been reading right now. Christina Lauren's new book. Uh, I love their stuff and I love, I adore both of them so much. Um, I'm doing the event that I have to figure out my boots for tonight is with them tonight in Arlington. Renee said hello. Oh, I will. I will. <laughs> they're fantastic. I, they're just, they're just such smart um, wonderful women. And, and it's, again, the gift of this industry is, you know, for every, every, you know, shitty line of comments and and every shitty line of, uh, um, uh, you know, just people coming after you or saying horrible things, you get the space with these brilliant people who inspire me every day. So thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me today. Is there anything you want to make sure to add or say, uh, before I hit stop? Oh my gosh. Um, no, I, I I feel like your questions were fantastic. I'm uh, oh, such you. it's such an honor to chat with you. I I again like like I feel very comfortable with you in a way that's extremely heartening, and it's like just chatting with a girlfriend over the phone. And I really really appreciate you setting aside this time to talk to me about books and to talk to me about the things that inspire me. Um, it's been such a ple- a pleasure. And that brings us to the end of this week's episode. Thank you to Renee Achtia for hanging out with me. If you would like to find her online, she is on the internet at reneeachtia.com. That's R-E-N-E-E-A-H-D-I-E-H.com. And she's on Twitter and she's on Instagram. And I will have links to everywhere you can find her in the show notes as well. And if you would like to get in touch with me and give me feedback or suggestions or tell me a bad joke because you know I love them, You can email me at sbjpodcast at gmail.com. The transcript for this episode is brought to you by our Patreon community, and our Patreon community is a wonderful, fabulous collection of humans. Thank you so much to every Patreon supporter who has made this show and every show possible and made sure that every show is accessible to everyone. And thank you to Garlic Knitter for compiling the transcript for this episode. Coming up on Smart Bitches... We have What You're Reading, Part 2, which is when we tell you what we are reading, and then you tell us what you are reading, and then, again, we buy more books, because that's pretty much what I do every day, is buy more books, or acquire more books. It's it's a book problem. So, uh, more books? Yes, more books. We are also going to have a roundup of upcoming book club romance reader gatherings around the country, including Alaska, Massachusetts, and many other places, Plus, this coming week, new reviews of anticipated books, a new stuff we like, and cover snark. Plus, Elise's bachelor recap, books on sale, help a bitch out. I hope you'll come and hang out with us because it's better when you do. I will have links to all of the books we talked about. The Beautiful is available now. The Damned will be out very soon. 
And I believe some of Renee's books are on sale as well. So have a look at the show notes at smartbitchestrashybooks.com slash podcast. As always, I end the episode with a truly terrible joke. You are welcome in advance. Are you ready? You ready? Are you sure? You sure you're sure? Okay, because this one's, as always, pretty terrible. Did you hear about the person who unscrewed a light bulb, crossed the street, and went into a bar? Yeah, well, their whole life is a joke. (laughs) It's so dumb. I love it so much. (laughs) I love it so much. On behalf of Renee and myself and my dog, who is snoring very loudly, and I've had to adjust the microphone to keep that from being picked up. So if you're hearing snoring, that's him, not me. We wish you the very best of reading. Have a wonderful weekend, and we will see you back here next week. Smart Podcast Trashy Books is part of the Frolic Podcast Network. You can find more outstanding podcasts to subscribe to that will fit all of your interests at frolic.media slash podcasts.